Let's pray. Lord, we know that the church's one foundation truly is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are a church that is in the midst of the toil and tribulations that we are waiting for the consummation of peace forevermore. And yet we know that while we are here upon this earth, that we live in union with God, the three in one, a very mystic and sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, Lord, as we come this morning, we look to you uh, for as our hope, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us ears to hear the words of truth. But, Lord, not just to know these things, but, Lord, that you would stir our hearts and our wills to obey them, to find comfort and peace where needed. Lord, that we would repent from sins that we have held on to way too long. And, Lord, that we would walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. This morning, as we continue in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, uh, we were talking last week about the unity that we, that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, well, if Christian unity is a, a state of oneness... If it is uh, living in harmony and agreement with each other, then I think if you look at the church today, you would have to say it doesn't look very unified. I mean, we have all these different denominations. We have different beliefs, at least to some degree, uh, different styles of worship, and the list goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, during the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church made the criticism of the Protestant Reformation that if you put the word of God in the hands of the people instead of the church controlling that, that you're going to end up with a very splintered church. And I think that there are some today who would say that's exactly what we are experiencing. And I think the Roman Catholic Church pats themselves on the back and says, but see, we're still unified. But all I would say to that is, is that external uniformity of practice doesn't necessarily uh, necessitate a unity of the church. But that's, that's a discussion for another day. The reality is, as frustrated, or excuse me, as fractured as the Christian church may appear, it actually is unified. Paul tells us and tells the church in Ephesians 4 verse 3 to be eager, to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That it's not something that we are to create. Unity is not something that we are trying to, to make happen. It already has happened. The church is unified. But we are to maintain and to walk in that, that unity that we have. As a matter of fact, we are eagerly to do so. Now, why is it that Paul can talk about the unity of the church when the church appears to be so fractured today. And not just today. We saw last week that even in the New Testament, you saw churches that were very fractured as well. And I would suggest to you, it is simply because the work that God is doing in the church is a unifying work. That the work that God is doing in his church is a unifying work. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verses 4 through 6. And uh, I want you to see the repetition of the word one. It's used seven times in, in these verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the triune God, works together to create unity in the church. And I want us to see that that is the foundation and that is the basis of Paul's uh, admonition that we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so I want to look at each one of these, each one of the three persons of the Godhead and see how they work to create the unity in the church this morning. Uh, beginning in verse 4, we see, first of all, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul actually reverses that order this morning. He talks about the Spirit, the Son, and, and the Father. But we read in verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, John tells us in 1 John that there are actually many spirits. But you'll notice in your translation, especially if you have the English Standard Version Bible, that it capitalizes the S in spirit because this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. That while there might be many spirits, there is only one Holy Spirit. And there is only one body of believers, the church, which is composed of every person who is trusted or will trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, we see that in many places in Scripture, one being uh, that might come to mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But, but I want us to see that when we talk about it being composed of every person who is trusted or will trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, that this is known as the invisible church. So every person who has, who does currently or will in the future trust in Christ, those Christians on earth, but also in heaven are part of the church and they are united as one body. And this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, where he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what he's talking about is the, the invisible church. Now, so when we say the invisible church, we are talking about the community of all the believers of all ages. It's this group of believers that are truly united in Jesus Christ. But when most people think about the church, they're not thinking about the invisible church. They're thinking about the visible church, where the church is a visible entity. For example, Kirk of the Plains. You can drive up into our parking lot and you can look up and you can see our signs and it'll say Kirk of the Plains. And you say, that's a church. Or just several doors down, you see another sign that says Landmark Christian Church. And you know that's a church. Or you go down the street just a little ways and you see Faith Baptist Church and you see that that's a church. Or a little bit farther down, you see Generations Church and, and you realize that that, that is a a church, uh, just like Paul would write to a, a body of believers. He, in First Corinthians chapter one, verse two, we read to the church of God at Corinth. Uh, he's referring to the visible church. We're speaking to that community that professes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a difference between the visible and the invisible church. It is possible to profess belief in Jesus Christ without having belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, I like the way J.I. Packer says it. He said, there's a distinction to be drawn between the church as we humans see it 
and has and as God alone sees it. You know, invisible doesn't mean that there's no sign of the church's presence, but that we cannot know as only God, the heart reader, knows which of those who have been baptized and made a profession of faith in the church has truly been regenerate or been born again. And Jesus taught that in the organized church that there would always be people who, though they thought they were Christians and passed as Christians, some even being ministers, uh, were, but were not renewed and one, one day faced the judgment of Christ. I mean, you think about uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, and the parable that Jesus tells of the, the, the seeds and the weeds and how they coexisted side by side. There's believers and there's unbelievers in any expression of the visible church. It's very likely that in our church there are those who trust in Jesus Christ, but equally so it's likely that there are those who do not trust. But they would see themselves as believers. And when Paul talks about the unity of the church, he's talking about the invisible church. He's talking about those all who are true believers in, in Jesus Christ. You know, when our elders receive you into membership, as best they can tell, they look at the fruit of your life, they hear the profession of your lips, and they make a determination as to whether they think that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But the problem with our elders, as godly a men as they are, they are men. They cannot see the heart, but the Spirit of God not only sees the heart, but it is the Spirit of God, as we read in John chapter 3, that regenerates the heart. We see that it is the Holy Spirit of God that gives us that new life in Jesus Christ. And so it is the Holy Spirit of God who possesses every true believer and who therefore is that inner unifying force that is at work in the true invisible church of Jesus Christ. So every person who truly trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, that every individual believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that collectively, as we read in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, is moving every Christian in a common direction of being like Jesus Christ. And we also saw in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, in essence, the Holy Spirit is sort of like the, um, the divine engagement ring. And I don't mean that in any kind of sacrilegious way, but it, he, he, he's a pledge given to those who trust Christ uh, that he is a guarantee that every believer who trusts in Christ will be at the married supper of the Lamb. That what God has promised, he will do. And he gives us a sign in much the same way that a young man would look at a young woman and say, I love you and I want you to show you my love. And my commitment to you in giving you this engagement ring that I will one day marry you and be a loving husband to you. In the same way, in much the same way, God does the same thing with believers. So as, as Christians, we have one hope that our calling to salvation is ultimately a calling to be like Jesus, to conform us to his image, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. To be holy and blameless before him, as we see in Ephesians 1, 4. 
And, and that will happen when we see the glorified Christ, as John talks about in 1 John 3, verse 2. So, so our calling to salvation is ultimately a calling to Christ-like eternal perfection and glory in heaven as we are with God face to face, much like Adam and Eve is. So the fact that all Christians have the same high destiny and are filled with the same spirit and the same expectations proves that we are one in Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit of God is working as diverse as we are within the church. He is working in the same way to make us like uh, Jesus Christ. So we see the work of the Spirit, but we also see the work of the Son in verse 5 as, as well. We see how the, wor- the Son works to create unity. It talks about how there's one Lord, one faith. One baptism. We see that the grounds of our unity is our shared relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior. And I like the way Paul puts it in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But we also know that Jesus is our Savior, is also our Lord as well. He is our Lord in the sense that he has bought us and we are his. And we see that in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. He, he owns us, he loves us, he cares for us, and he protects us. And so that, that title of Lord also identifies Jesus with the Old Testament name of Jehovah or Yahweh. And it reminds us that Jesus is sovereign over the kingdom in which we have been saved to. And, and as you take that word Lord and you, you really look at the context and you, as, as it's used in reference to the one body, it reminds us that Jesus Christ is the head of, of the body and Lord of the church. And he says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, And he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, who bows before the grace and sovereignty of his saving lordship, must acknowledge that they are united with other believers because Jesus Christ is their Lord. But sometimes as believers, we don't always do that. Sometimes we look at other believers and, and we think differently of them. We don't think of them as being in the same camp as us. Think, if you would, back to, to the account in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. And Jesus rebukes his disciples. I mean, he sternly rebukes his disciples for trying to stop a man who's casting out a demon in Jesus' name. And why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because they said, he doesn't follow us. He's not part of us. They, they couldn't see beyond themselves and their own groups. They were denying that this unknown man, the Bible doesn't tell us who it was, that he truly belonged to Jesus. And, and they denying that, that he was their Lord. And they were, in effect, uh, defining Jesus' lordship by their own categories, limited to their own limited circle. But, but Jesus rebukes them for that. And he says that he is doing my work. But, it, but if there is only one Lord, then Jesus is Lord over everyone who serves God 
in his name, whether they belong to us and our church or our denomination or not. If they are Christ, then they are family and must be treated as family, the one Lord Jesus Christ. But he says here also that there's one faith. Now, that word faith, there's been a lot of ink spilt over this word, you know, as to what exactly it is that Paul's talking about. Because the faith could refer to the idea of trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. It is sort of that subjective aspect of faith. But that word faith also could mean the body of doctrine and teaching of the Christian faith. Now, if if you're a, a student of God's word, you know that it's really hard to separate these two things, that they really go together. That as we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's not a blind faith. That faith is based upon fact, upon what we know in God's word. So the one Lord Jesus Christ as the sent one of the Father is the sole object of, of saving faith. Now, in the church tradition that we belong to, we promote, of course, what is called the Reformed faith. And I personally believe that the Reformed faith as expressed, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is the purest and most biblical expression of faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude talks about. But there is a danger of thinking that everyone who doesn't heartily embrace the Reformed faith can hardly be seen as Christian. But not all Christians are confessional Calvinists. That's just a simple fact. Uh, The one faith Paul is highlighting here is the saving faith that has the Lord Jesus Christ as its foundation. It is the faith that glories in the cross of Christ alone for salvation. Where this faith is present, true Christianity is, is present. Now, he talks about here not only one Lord and one faith, but also one baptism. One Christian baptism is the sealing sign of cleansing from sin and union with Christ. Our baptism is intended to mark us out publicly as belonging to God and to his church. It it does not and cannot affect that belonging, but it is the divinely commanded sign to publicize that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. And, and it is a tragedy that the sign that God commanded to be placed on all who belong to his covenant people should become such a, a storm center of controversy within the church. Uh, and, of course, this is not the place uh, to judge the relative merits of covenant baptism and, and credo baptism. That's not my point this morning. But it is perhaps enough to say that there is one baptism. And if we cannot agree with our fellow blood-bought believers as to who should be baptized, at the very least, we should respect the godly scriptural convictions of those who differ from us. If our Christian profession cannot rise above the waters that divide so that we tell the world that despite our differences, we are brothers and sisters who love one another and are bound together in the fellowship of Christ, it is flawed. Now, I I hope you see, as you look at the world, and even within the the Christian world, you see so many that are seeking to bring about some sense of uh, external unity within the church by believing less and less doctrine. That what they're seeking to do is to say, you know, if we want to get along with one another, we've got to lay aside all those things that are true. But I want us to see here that Paul doesn't say that. Paul actually says the opposite. He said there are very definite things that that must occur, that that we must believe. Because there is one Lord and one faith, uh, 
in one baptism. And I think as you look at the different denominations and the different emphasis that those denominations have on Scripture, actually those differences can be a benefit to us. I think oftentimes we see our differences as something that uh, causes division amongst us. But if we understand that there is truly one Christian faith, there is one truth, and that truth is found here in God's Word, then as we disagree with one another, it, it sharpens us like iron sharpens iron. It helps us to see, okay, now you see, as you read God's Word this way, you know, but as I read God's word, I see it's this way. And we can we can sharpen one another to help us to come closer to understand what the true truth is that God has revealed. It's not what we think is true, but it's what God says is true. And so these things, if done in Christian love, with done, as Paul said, with humility and with gentleness and patience, we eagerly seek to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, that even these differences can help us uh, in terms of understanding what it is that God has revealed. So we ought not to shy away from these differences, but instead we ought to praise God that he has uh, given us this blessing that we could help one another to grow closer to truth and to understand what God's word has said. And then finally, we see the work of the Father. Paul concludes and, and climaxes this the sevenfold oneness of the church by reminding the Ephesians of the one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Uh, the church is not only the body of Christ, but also uses the imagery of the church being a family. And we saw that back in chapter 2, verse 19 of Ephesians. It is that divine family uh, in that divine family, there is one Father, and that is God the Father. And Paul could hardly more effectively and dramatically accentuate the church's essential oneness than in the description of the church being a family. The one Father is above all and through all and in all. So, so how can there be a Jewish and a Gentile church or a church for blacks and a church for whites or a church for the cultured people and a church for the uncultured people and a church for white collar workers and those for blue collar workers and a church for the house and the church for the house not? The Bible says that there is one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. And the theology of the Bible compels us to refuse every attempt to, to divide the church on the basis of race or culture or color or education or wealth or anything else. Uh, we see that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. What matters is, are we in Christ or are we not in Christ? And God is one and the Father is one, not many. And so God's church is native, natively one, and we are to walk in that oneness. And yet Paul is compelled by the Spirit to urge us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And any indifference to the visible, visible public unity of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, is a mark of spiritual immaturity at best and spiritual ignorance at worst. And so we ought to seek to walk in the unity that we have. Now, why is that so important to us? Where does that sort of uh, touch us in our lives? Well, there's probably many places, but just a couple that I want to share with you this morning 
is, uh, is this. It's important that we remember that the foundation or the basis of our unity comes from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because when we disagree with other believers or we're having conversations about other branches of the church that we disagree with, it is so easy for us to villainize them and forget that we are united because of the unifying work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we must be careful how we speak of one another because, brothers and sisters, sin against unity in the church are sins against the triune God. And we must remember that he is at work to make us one in Christ. And if we are talking with brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to understand that we are talking to people in whom God is at work. We may be different places theologically. We may be different places in a variety of other ways. But nonetheless, God is working in those people. And for us to slam them, to speak slander against them, is to speak, speak slander against the God who is at work within them. And so we must be patient and we must be careful. We must have that sense of gentleness and patience and humility that Paul talks about in earlier in chapter 4. And secondly, I think uh, it's so easy as we come into a new church and we come into a fellowship to select those whom we choose to fellowship in the church based on how much they are like us. Now, we never say that, but isn't that oftentimes what we do when we come into a new church? We sort of look around and scope out the landscape of who's there and what people are like. And oftentimes we look for people of similar interest to us. We look for people who are similar in personality, maybe, or similar beliefs. Do they like to talk about theology or not? Are they similar temperament? Are they similar age and stage of life? But as we come to realize that our unity with other believers is based on God's work in our lives and that uh, of other, excuse me, and um, but when we come to realize that our unity with other believers is based on God's work in our lives and that of other believers, it sets us free to realize that while our age or our stage in life may be different than that of other believers or our economic status may be higher or lower or our interests and our personalities may be different, we are no longer bound to build relationships only with those who are like us. As those united in God, there is a commonality with other believers that are different from us because God is at work in both of us, because God's spirit dwells within us and is moving us in the same direction in Christ's likeness, because the son is ruling over our lives and our hearts and has identified us with him because we belong to that same family. You see, commonality in who we are as individuals is not what binds us together, brothers and sisters, but rather the commonality of the unifying work that God is doing in us. And so we have the freedom to get to know one another who are different from us, people who are not exactly like us. Now, we may not become best friends. I don't know how the Lord will develop those relationships. But let us not just narrow our scope to those people that are like us and say, this is who I'm going to hang out with. Because God has brought every person to this local church body whom he wants to be here with our different gifts, our different abilities, uh, our different perspectives. All these things we're going to talk about next week. He has brought them here for a reason to strengthen 
and to build up the body because it is God's blessing to his church. Amen? God is so good and let us glorify him uh, as we recognize the unifying work that he is doing in our midst. Please, would you bow with me this morning as we pray? Lord, as we come this morning, uh, we recognize uh, as, as people, it, it is, we are just so prone to look at the outside of other people and make judgments upon them based upon the things that we see and the things that we hear, the things that we experience. Uh, but you remind, have reminded us throughout Scripture, you know, even when you chose a king over Israel, um, Samuel wanted to choose one of Jesse's sons who was handsome or, or uh, had some kind of external appeal. Uh, but you had put your heart upon David because of the work that you were doing in his life. And Lord, it's much the same way in, in the church today. That you are at work in our lives in ways maybe that we don't always recognize externally. But Lord, we thank you that you have reminded us that that is the case. And I pray that you would help us as we walk alongside one another, as we are eager, eager, God, to maintain that unity that you have created within your church, that, that you would help us to walk according to your standards, to see the work that you are doing, and that, Lord, you would help us to treat each other accordingly, as those who have uh, had your electing love set upon one another. And Father, we pray that in these things that we would glorify you. We pray, Lord, that we would be a witness to the world around you, that the, that the unity that we have within our body and with other Christians would be very evident. Lord, I pray this morning that if there be those that uh, have not walked in such unity, uh, Lord, maybe there's those that come to their mind that they have spoken words they've been harsh with or maybe within their own family uh, that they need to be reconciled. We pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts uh, to cause them to go to a brother or sister and ask for and to be repentant, to ask for forgiveness and to be reconciled. Lord, that you would help us to see that you work within our whole body and not just with people like us. And God, help us to get to know one another and to love one another and, and to find hidden jewels and people that maybe we would not have normally associated with as we uh, hear of the work that you are doing in our lives. We just thank you, God, that you have uh, blessed us and are blessing us. And we pray that you would help us to continue to walk in the grace that you have shown us when we first came to faith in you and the grace that will carry us on to the days when we spend eternity in worship and praise to you. May we walk in that grace even now that people could see our God and glorify him. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please take your, your songbooks and turn to Hymn number 416, Your Hand, O God, Has Guided. <laughs> 